Okay, so we are back in our series now, The People of God's Kingdom. We're finishing up Chapter 13 in Matthew. Um, We will be taking a break uh, next Sunday for this just because uh, I have to be out of town this week. And uh, Brother Steve Sigler is going to be filling in next Sunday. Uh, He was supposed to fill in, but uh, the Lord had other plans and COVID had other plans. And so uh, we're putting him back on the schedule just because he had prepared so much and I didn't want him to not have the opportunity. So he's going to be filling in next week. We'll be here, but Brother Steve will be taking that. So we're back in the series, People of God's Kingdom. Um, If you have been with us, you know that Jesus has been telling parables throughout this particular chapter, which have been all designed to explain the kingdom of heaven. That's been the impetus of all that he's been teaching. You know, really, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the the book, you'll see him doing just that. And his real point in it is so that the disciples would have a very clear understanding of what they were getting themselves into, but also to make sure they understood that they would be a part of it. He really has no desire, and I'm speaking about God himself, has no desire for people to be confused about this life unless they are ones who just simply turn their hearts away from him. And so today, once again, as we come to a real quick close on this, not this time, but next time, uh, Jesus is going to once again emphasize the kingdom of heaven and making this a pretty challenging message. Uh, And I just kind of forewarn you with that, that we're going to be covering some information here that's tough. It's tough to hear. It's tough to preach, uh, but it's eternal truth and it's necessary about the kingdom of heaven, basically who will and who won't be there. And so I've titled this message, Understanding God's Judgment and God's Kingdom. So stand with me and let's read verses 47 through 52 as Jesus gives us this one last parable, at least in this chapter. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all of these things? They said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Amen. Please be seated. And like many of you, I have had the great privilege, and that's truth from my mind, to witness to people over the years about just what the Lord is talking about here, and that is helping them to come to the knowledge of uh, saving grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, one of the fundamental elements, points I should say, that people have typically brought up is the subject of not just heaven, that's always a question on people's minds, but mostly about the judgment of God. It's always been a tough subject for people to grasp and really fill their minds with. In fact, most people will believe in God. Most people don't have a problem with that. In fact, if you talk to the average person out here and you talk about God and a loving God, they're going to say, absolutely, I want to know that God. I want to be a part of all of that. And they'll do whatever they can to follow him, even give to his work. But usually the caveat is something like, 
you know, um, just don't talk to me much about the judgment part. I don't think I want to hear a lot about that. I'll take all the kindness of God. I'll take all the love of God, but don't talk to me about the judgment of God. But I have to tell you, beloved, and those of you that have been here for a lot of years and you're students of the scripture yourself, you know that there is no God in the Bible like that. You cannot have a part of God and leave out the other part of him. It just doesn't work that way because that denies who he is. Is the God of the Bible loving? Absolutely. And praise his name for that, right? Is he gracious and merciful? Absolutely. Is he willing and able to take care of our needs? Yes. Is he kind? Yes. Is he patient? Yes. Thank the Lord for that, right? Is he, does he have the ability to provide? Yes. Is he judgmental? Yes. He is very much so. And he has a right to. And that's because he's God. And I think we have to think that way if we're going to be true Christians. We have to understand that this world, this life is not us. This is not about us and what we want necessarily. It's about God and what he does. And so he has the right to be any way that he wants. And so we live this life then according to what he says and what he wants. He's the master, we're the servants. And if we do that, then we find ourselves on our way to the kingdom of heaven. Now, that statement encompasses a lot. And if you've been with us, you know that there is much more behind that in the sense of trusting Christ as our Savior, which we'll talk about here in just a few minutes. But more specifically, on the, top, on the topic today, Jesus is going to cover some very important things. And I've just pulled out some things that I think are important for our understanding that I hear nestled within what the Lord is saying here to explain the kingdom of God more clearly. Number one, there's a process God is using to get the message of salvation to people. Okay? There is a process that God is using to get the message of salvation to people. I want you to go back to verse 47 for a second. I'm not going to reread that, but I just simply want your eyes to go to that so that you're seeing that the Lord is comparing being a part of the kingdom of heaven to a dragnet. And now some of your translations may not say it that way. I think King James says just net. But let me describe more specifically what this is because it's important that you understand. A dragnet was one of several tools that was used by fishermen in their, various tra in their trade to, to gather the various fish that they wanted to gather. Uh, in this particular case, the dragnet was an extremely large net. You probably have this in your mind already, uh, but just... Some of you might be surprised to know that this net could be as large as covering a half of a square mile. I mean, it's big. And so it would require a team of fishermen to use it. And it was made, if you can kind of picture this, uh, with uh, the top of the net uh, having floats on it and then the bottom of the net having weights on it so it would sink down and, and become like a wall in the water, if you will. And so the fishermen would take their boats sometimes more than two or three because it was so large and they would make a big circle with it out in the lake and let the, the, the heavy end fall down so that nothing could escape from within it. Okay, if you can imagine this picture in your mind. Now, um, what they would do is one boat or two of the boats would circle around and then after a certain amount of time, they would gather together the net and, and whatever was in it would be brought to shore. 
Okay, that was one way that they would do it. Or they might just put a stake in the ground if it were just one fisherman or maybe two boats and that one end would be attached to the shore and then they would drag it out into the, into the water and they would leave it for a set period of time, however they determined, and then they would gather it up and bring it back in uh, the same way. And so you kind of get the process there. But the point that the Lord is making here is that this net in the fisherman's mind, they would know this, the disciples would be very clear on this, is that it gathers everything that's caught in it. I already mentioned that, but it's important that you understand that, which is what Jesus says here in verse 47. He says it's gathering fish of every kind. But the fishermen didn't care because they knew the process was we just haul in everything we can haul in, we'll take it back to the shore, and then we'll begin the uh, the process of sorting. Now, that illustration then would help the disciples to understand the process that God uses to reach people with his truth is just like that. Meaning that in this life, the process of God is to spread the message of truth to every person. And so just picture that. It doesn't matter where they're from. It doesn't matter the nationality, it doesn't matter the color of skin, it doesn't matter the language or people group, it doesn't matter. There's no concern for just one group in the process of God spreading the message of of hope, but to everybody. And the idea then is, is that we, you and I, as God's people, are a part of the process. We're a part of casting the net figuratively and we catch all that we can. That's our role in all of this, which is why we do what we do as a church. Just make it personal here for just a minute. And that is, if you think with me, those of you that have been with us, you know that over the years we've done a lot of net casting. That's been the purpose. Whether it's some special event uh, that's serious of nature or whether it's a fun event with the things that we've done in the community, whether it's yard sales or mission trips or vacation Bible school or Uh, block parties and soccer camps and youth camps, and I had to write them down so I could remember them all. There's a lot of things over 20 years that we've been doing. Some of you all will remember Mission to Virginia. Uh, That was a a process where we gathered together various things to go into the community and help people build decks and paint and do projects in their yards, and and it was just a, a fun time. You'll remember that one of the main events of that, though, was even if you weren't a part of it, you may have not even known it was going on, I hope you did, was that we would give that homeowner a Bible. And then some persons or some of us would go in and we'd talk to those homeowners because the real goal was to make sure that they understood that we were not just there to fix their gutters. I mean, that's a nice thing to do. We weren't there just to fix uh, something else or rake their yard, but our real goal is in our mind is the casting of the net so that they'll hear the message of salvation and then give a response to it. We would do other things as well. That doesn't even mention the Bible handouts, which was a great, great thing to do because that was literally giving the word of God into their hands. And that was an exciting time. Some of you all remember that. But again, the purpose of all of those things that we've done over the years has been to be a part of the dragnet of God sharing his love and his word. So as many people as possible would hear and again have the opportunity to respond and escape, and this becomes the tough part, but you see it in Jesus' words there in the verses, escape the judgment of God that is going to come upon all of those who reject his offer of salvation. And all of this has to go, I could go on. Are you going to have a business meeting right after the service today and you're 
going to hear some reports from the teams and uh, Brother Craig knows is that we and, and the rest of you in the church know that we take on missionaries. I just I should encompass that all in what I've already said, and that is all of these attempts by us as a church are the casting of the net out there. Okay? It's to gather as many fish, if you want to call people that, into the picture here or into the net, just using Jesus's illustration here. Our goal is not to just spend money or waste our time on doing things, but there is a purpose to them. At least that should be the motive behind it all. But let me say this now. As much as we have done and things are important to do, it's not about the things or the events or even the trips. Some of us have made long, hard mission trips over the years. We've spent hours exhausting ourselves doing that, and they are extremely important, but they're not the gospel. Okay, so hear me when I'm saying this. The things that we do are not the gospel. They are tools, important tools, critical tools. If you listen to Jesus' illustration here, you hear him say the boats and the fishermen are tools. That's all they are. But the dragnet is different. The dragnet is unique. It's not just a tool because in the parable, if you're listening carefully to the Lord, he's saying the dragnet is actually the message of God's truth. It has a unique meaning behind it. In other words, the dragnet represents salvation, the offer of salvation that goes into all the world for everybody who's willing to accept it. Which is why, again, if I could direct your attention back to verse 47, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And it's really important to understand that what the Lord is really saying here, because I think too often we think our efforts and our projects, as good as they are, are going to get people saved. But that's not right. Now, God will use those things, and that becomes the point. But that's not how people are are saved. It's not through our efforts or projects. Only the Lord saves. It's through the opening of the heart and the acceptance of the fact that we are all sinners and in need of repentance, the turning away from our sinfulness and trusting in what the Lord has done for us through the giving of his son's death that we have eternal life. It's not an emotional thing, although it can be very emotional. We were talking about this in our new members class today. Often emotions come with a decision like that to follow the Lord, but it's not an emotion. To be saved or born again means that you've come to the place in your life where you realize that God has a penalty on your soul. He's put a penalty on your life for rebelling against him. Now, he loves us. He doesn't want to have to judge, but he will by default because he is holy. And his judgment will go out on every soul that rejects him, whether purposefully or just by flat out Ignorance or denial. You say, how can that be? Well, we let God determine those things. What we do do, though, is we listen to what the Lord is saying to us. But just understand this, that the gospel is not in some act of service or what you and I think or feel. The gospel message is we are sinners who have rebelled against God and we deserve death. Just as Tim was praying there earlier and said, How unworthy are we? And these aren't the exact words he was using, but how unworthy are we to even be here? Why would he say something like that? Well, because we understand how sinful we are. And because of that sin, God has a punishment for all of us. But when we put our trust in his son, who took the place of our punishment, 
then we are set free. So the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ because of what he's done for us. Paul says this in Romans 5, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Did you hear that? Justified by his blood, we are saved from what? The wrath of God. See, people don't want to hear that, but it is truth from the scriptures. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now receive and have received the reconciliation. God has made us right because of God's grace. In fact, many of you know the little acronym, uh, the acrostic, if you will, of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. If you take one of the letters of the, the word there, you understand that to be true. And that really is a good way to think of it. It was God's riches given to us at the expense of his own son. Now, the point is, in all of that, is that we can exhaust ourselves and in many ways doing good things. And many people have done this and are doing things to attract people, but they're never going to get saved. They're never going to truly come to the point of understanding the gospel until they turn to Christ as their Lord and see him and, and their great need for him. And so God's process simply is, here is basically saying to the disciples, now look guys, do all you can do to cast the net of salvation. Go out into the world, spread the net so people will hear and God will do the work in their hearts. It's not your job to change them, it's your job to get the message out there. But if you don't give the message, then what they've had is a good fun day or a good play day, or a good need met physically, but they've never heard what God really wants them to hear, which is the message of salvation to make their hearts changed. Okay, so first of all, Jesus is saying, there's the process. Now, the second thing is, for now, God allows all people to hear the opportunity about salvation. I'm choosing my words carefully here in this point. For now. God allows all people. In other words, in the era of mankind, humanity, going way back to the beginning, God shares the message of salvation to all people, everybody, both the righteous and the unrighteous, which is why we have in John 3.16, the verse that most everybody knows, especially at the football stadiums, for God so loved the what? The world. That he did what? He gave his son so that whoever will believe in him shall not, what? Perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Again, notice the emphasis on the word there, world. It's talking about the sphere of mankind, humanity. And that contains, again, both believers and unbelievers. And that's because all the people of the earth, now listen to this, are under the sovereignty of God's control. It's so important to see this. This is what Jesus wants the disciples to understand. The world may not see this, doesn't definitely see it, but God is still sovereignly working his plan, meaning that every soul lives freely in this life 
doing whatever they do, either knowing or not knowing, that they're inside the net, that they're inside the sphere of God's plan and purpose of salvation, unless by chance they bump into it somehow. And if you can picture kind of a little fish there swimming in the net, if this net is a square mile or half a square mile, then there's going to be lots of fish that don't even know that there's a net there until they come up close to it and bump into it and try to get out. And then there may be some reaction to it. And so if you want to think of it all of that in another way, every soul on this planet either lives following God or not following God. There's only two people. The true followers obviously obey his commands and surrender their lives to him. It's pretty obvious by now. But the unrighteous, who are also living within the sphere of God's sovereignty, in that dragnet, if you will, for now, are just doing what they do. They're just living life as they know it which is to do just basically what you and I do, work every day. We go to the grocery store, we go to the gas station, we fuss, we complain about everything, earn money, spend money, and do everything with seemingly little to no constraint. That's the world, right? Just freely swimming about, believing that they don't have any constraints from them and certainly free from anything related to God. If you talk to the average person out there who really doesn't care about God, they'll say that God is not a part of my life and they think they're just swimming their little freedom all around the world as they want to, not understanding that they are still under the scrutiny of God in in his vision, if you will, or in his plan of judgment if there's no surrender. Now, when I'm talking about the bumping into the net, there may be those times where those people out there in the world feel some sense of conviction. That's kind of like the bumping into the net or something happens in, in their life that causes them to maybe change briefly, which is what Jesus is referring to earlier when he's talking about how people are all for the Lord and then all of a sudden some issues come along. Well, people feel that. You know, the average person out here will feel a sense of conviction and right and wrong, uh, but soon it doesn't take long for them to go back to their old ways. And so... Uh, There's no real change in their heart because they never really believed in God's warning. They never really believed in the fact that God is sovereignly holding them accountable. And so for now, as an act of mercy on God's part and as an act of compassion on God's part, the the judgment or the, the spreading of the net is continually going on. God is still using people to get the message out there. And this is all the Bible writings all the way up to the end, gathering those who believe as well as those who don't. Which leads us and hopefully helps us understand this next point. Salvation is available for only a certain amount of time. It's only available for a certain amount of time. Now, in Jesus' day, and perhaps every fisherman even today who does it this way, knew that their fishing trip was going to be over when their nets were full. In other words, they all knew when they went out, no matter how long the time might be, there was going to come a point where their nets were going to be full or they were going to have to go back to shore. There was a definite ending point. And when the time came, they would do that. They would go back and start the process of sorting the fish, the good ones for the marketplace, the not-so-good ones to disperse among family members maybe or do whatever else they're going to do with them, which is why he says again in verse 47, they drew up on the beach and they sat down, they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad ones they throw away. Jesus is simply making the same point. And from that he says, so it will be at the end of the age. Now Jesus is making a huge statement there. 
In just a very few words, he makes a huge statement there, meaning there is also a limited amount of time for people to come to know the truth about who he is, just like there is for the fishermen. And that limited time is a person's life. You and I only have so much of it. That becomes painfully aware to all of us who are growing older, where we have to decide at some point where we're going to spend eternity. Every soul is faced with that question at some point in life, which is why the psalmist says in Psalm 39, 5, Behold, you have made my day, speaking to the Lord, as a handbreadth. Now, that handbreadth is that portion of your hand right here. It's the way they would measure certain things. And my life as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. At his best. At his best. What's he talking about? At the prime of a young man's life. His life is a breath in the hands of the Lord. Now notice how the psalmist adds this last word, selah. It's a very interesting word there. It's a word that means stop and consider what God's saying. Think about this. Pause on this. Look at his truth and, and think about how you need to change your life and your life needs to be affected by what you're hearing. Just giving you a couple more instances here of this truth in Scripture. Psalm 90 verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain about 70 years. And I always forget to bring my tape measure up here. I should have gotten it out of uh, Maggie's toolbox when I was thinking about it. I almost did. Pull out the tape to 70, find your age on the line, and you're either really happy because you got a lot more years left, you hope, or you gulp real hard. Some of you go, thank the Lord I'm still here because you're past 70. That's what he says. If you have strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us the number to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Don't you love the wording of the psalmist? In other words, he's saying, Lord, don't just give me intellectual knowledge, but Lord, put it in my heart how brief the days of my life are so that I can know how to handle this. I can deal with my eternity. Psalm 102.3, for my days have been consumed in smoke and my bones have been scorched like a hearth. Psalm 144.4, man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. James 4.14, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Now, back to the parable here for a second. In the context of what Jesus is talking about, he's, he's... not just talking about a single person's life, but the generation of mankind. He's trying to help the disciples to understand the big picture, meaning just as an individual's life is short, so is the realm of man in the providence of God. It's very short, which is why Jesus uses the phrase end of the age. In other words, there's going to come a time where the reign and the realm of mankind and humanness will end as we now know it. And when that time comes, Jesus is simply saying, God is going to use the angels to separate the good servants. And he's talking about those who have trusted him as Lord and Savior and separate them from those who have rejected him 
and his offer of salvation. And that's the time that John refers to in Revelation as the great white throne judgment. If you're with us in that study, you know about that. At the time of the end of the millennial reign of Christ, after Jesus has reigned for a thousand years, he is going to institute this judgment on all who are alive at that particular point. They're going to stand before God in his final judgment. And again, the angels are going to do the separating. Look with me at Revelation 20, verse 12 through 15. And I saw the dead, the great and the small. That's again referring to all humanity standing before the throne. Guess who's not going to miss that? No one. And books were opened. Those are the records, the recordings of everything that you and I have done in this life. In this particular case, he's talking about the unsaved. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. Now, he refers to them as the dead because these are the spiritually dead. He's referring specifically to those who have not trusted Christ as their Savior. And they will be judged according to their deeds. Why is that? Because there is no spirit life in them to judge them. So the only thing left is the fleshly works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead, even referring to the souls of those who had already died. God is going to bring them back to the time of judgment for the ultimate judgment. And they were judged, according to what John writes here, every one of them, according to their deeds. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book, singular, of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All that simply to say, the reality is, beloved, there may not be a tomorrow for you to decide whether you're going to trust Christ or not. Because you don't know. You don't know whether there's tomorrow. And the Lord's making that clear. There is an appointed time of salvation for everyone. Meaning there is a time for every person to make a decision, which is why God says in 2 Corinthians 6, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is referring to the immediate present, this moment. And so I could just simply say to each of you, if you've never trusted, surrendered your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ to be the debt payer for you, now is the time to do that. Right this moment. John 9, 4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work, Jesus said. There's going to come a time for the accounting of man's souls. Which leads us to the fourth thing Jesus wants them to know. Notice this, he wants us to know and understand that and understand hell and what you are being rescued from. This is very important. Often people don't understand this. So he wants us to know and understand hell and what you're being rescued from. Go with me now to verses 49 and 50 back to our chapter. So it will be at the end of the age, which we've already mentioned, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. I want you to realize here that the furnace of fire is the emphasis They're going to be thrown into the furnace of fire. Now, contrary to what a lot of people think about hell, it's not going to be the party scene, contrary to what the country singers think and and some others who promote the joy of going to hell. 
According to the Lord, it is going to be an unimaginable place of torment. And I don't know what other words to use, quite honestly. I can only use the Lord's words here because in my humanness, I can't give to you what that's going to be like in its fullness. But there are some things we do know, simply from the words fire. If you've ever been burned, you know the pain that fire causes. You've been burned in a small way, you know it's still very painful. If you've been burned in a a drastic way, you know the horrific pain that that causes and you know how it does not easily subside. It lasts. And for those who are burned badly, you understand even, maybe if it's not you, you know someone who's been burned badly that it also has repercussions and effects on the soul of the person internally. I'm not talking about spiritually necessarily, but I'm talking about the psyche of the person. In fact, I found this interesting article in the National Library of Medicine. It said this, that major burns may have long-lasting impact on the quality of people's lives with persistent problems relating to scarring, contractures, weakness, thermoregulation, itching, pain, sleep, body image, and psychosocial well-being. In addition to the direct consequences of the burn, the intensive care treatment may also cause cognitive, affective, and behavioral challenges. Consequently, burn-injured individuals have reported limitations in health-related quality of life compared to to the general population uh, in its normalcy. And that's just in the human realm. That's just talking about people who have suffered from physical burning here in this life. But what about in the spirit realm? And this is the Lord's emphasis here. Is that there will be no relief. Ever. 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 You hear that? which we partly understand from Luke's account of the rich man who finds himself in hell thinking he's on the right path in his lifetime. If you look with me in Luke 16, verse 23, the rich man in Hades, that's the temporary holding place, if you want to think of it like that, for the Old Testament people until the great white throne judgment. He lifts up his eyes being what? In torment. I looked at the definition of that word and it just simply refers to severe pain, uh, but this word, which I think we can all identify with, is simply torture. He is there in torture. And he sees Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom, that's the poor man, and he cried out and says to Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony where? in this flame. Clearly, beloved, meaning that hell will be a place where not only the physical body is in extreme torment, but also the soul of the people who are there. But unlike this life, that torment will never end. I just sometimes think we don't think like that. I don't think we process this very well. We think in snippets of time because for us in this life everything has a beginning and an end and so we don't know how to process eternity and that's why the Lord keeps going over this partly and keeps bringing it up because the, the, 
the consequences for those who reject him will forever and forever and forever be in this torment. And we learn from scripture, according to 1 Corinthians, uh, the bodies of the believers who are resurrected will have some eternal new body that will be lasting forever. And Paul can only describe that as saying, I I don't know what that's going to look like. All I can tell you is it's going to be awesome. But that gives evidence that according to what the Lord is saying here is that for those souls that die and go to hell, that they're going to also be fitted with some kind of eternal body that feels and experiences the pain of eternal torment. Mark said this, in addition to all of that, in chapter 9, verse 44, hell is that place where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched which he takes from Isaiah 66, 24, meaning, and I have to take it this way, that in a figurative way, but also in a very literal way, that just as a decomposing body is literally eaten by worms, this never-ending decaying flesh will be in that perpetual and continual state of worm-eatenness, if you will. Matthew, in chapter 22, also describes hell as a place of outer darkness. And I don't understand that because fire always gives light. But evidently, hell is going to be without light, certainly the source of true light, God himself. And so without the true source of light, there is no true light. Everything that you and I know as light is created by God. He put the sun in place. He put the moon in place. He put the stars to reflect. And everything that we know of in light comes from God himself. But when you remove God, there is nothing but darkness, which is why Genesis starts out, in the beginning, there was nothing. And you and I can't understand what nothingness is, but just understand whatever nothing is, it is the epitome of nothingness. Because without God, there is nothing. But yet in this place, there will be the eternal torment of flames in utter darkness, pitch blackness making them, those poor souls who are there, move around in a groping, utter, never-ending situation of pain. Those of you who are with us in our Wednesday night study, beginning the Pilgrim's Progress, you know John Bunyan wrote that, and here's what he says of hell. In hell thou shalt have none but a company of damned souls with an innumerable company of devils to keep company with thee. While thou art in this world, the very thought of the devils appearing to thee makes thy flesh to tremble and thine hair ready to stand upon on thy head. But oh, what wilt thou do when not only the supposition of the devils appearing, but the real society of all the devils of hell will be with thee, howling, roaring, and screeching in such a hideous manner that thou wilt be even at thy wit's end and ready to run stark mad against for anguish and torment. If after 10,000 years an end should come, there would be comfort. But here is thy misery. Here thou must be forever. When thou seest what an innumerable company of howling devils thou art amongst, thou shalt think this again, this is my portion forever. When thou hast been in hell so many thousand years as there are stars in the firmament or drops in the sea or sands on the seashore, yet thou 
has to lie there forever. Oh, this one word ever. How will it torment thy soul? What a picture. Which is why Jesus adds to his statement here, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now there's been some discussion about what that really means, but obviously it means not only will there be tears from the eternal physical pain, but also because of those who will realize that they are doomed forever. I think the gnashing of teeth probably has some reference to the same thing, to the response of pain and suffering. Or even perhaps the anger and the hatred without the Spirit of God in the soul, burning in bitterness towards God, blaming Him for their condition. It's that sense of grinding the teeth, that that even in hell they have great hatred towards God. My beloved, you... And I'm like you. That's why I said in the very beginning, you may not want to hear all of this this morning. This is not a fun message. You may wonder even, why is the Lord bringing it up? Because he just brought it up earlier, if you remember. If you go back a couple weeks, you remember that message. Well, the answer is really simple, and that's because of the stark reality of it. Do you realize that the Lord spoke and taught more about hell than he did even about love? that he spoke more and taught more about hell than any other prophets? And why do you think that would be? I have to believe because the Lord himself knows far better than anyone of the reality of it and the demise of every soul that will go there for eternity. And I think without question, the Lord is pleading and begging people to listen to him. Don't let me have to put you there. It's like that perfect parent who says, don't make me have to do this, but I will because my holiness demands it and I will not violate my holiness, not for you or anyone else, but listen to me, come to me, trust me, fall on my mercy and let me rescue you so that you don't have to enter into this place for eternity. I believe that's the Lord's heart. In fact, according to Ezekiel 18.23, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God has no sick desire to just punish people. God has no somehow inhumane weirdness about him to inflict pain on people just because. God does it because of what we were talking about before is that he is holy and there is nothing about him that will succumb to anything but holiness. And so to be defined by holiness means he must judge what is not holy, whether that judgment be even a person just not purposefully, but just still rejecting him, he must deal with it. Or even for the soul that says, I will not And therefore his wrath is poured out against that soul. 
2 Peter 3.9 says the very same thing, which is exactly why Jesus came. Again, he came to teach about this and sought to rescue people from it. Again, one of my favorite passages, and my family knows this, you probably already know this by now, is Colossians 1.13 and 14. He came to rescue us from the domain of darkness and to transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do you see the work of the Lord, beloved? We live in this sovereign sphere of God as we think nothing else is happening under his control and all the while the Lord is teaching us, oh yes it is. My message of salvation is going out, it's going out, it's going out, it's going out and there's going to come a day where I'm going to bring it all together and I'm going to separate the unrighteous from the righteous. And you heed my words, the Lord is saying. But still, even in the midst of all of that truth, the reality of hell is often escaped by people. In fact, what preacher, what teacher of the gospel, what messenger of the gospel in their daily life hasn't heard a person criticize them or speak down to them because they bring up such a subject? That's the culture we're living in. Don't talk to me about that. Give me the Jesus that's all love and mush Because that that soul can't fathom the idea of a God sending a person to a place like that. And so they'll have their own God and not the God of the Bible. Which, by the way, beloved, just understand this. God sends no one there. A person sends themselves there. And I hope you hear that. All along and throughout the Bible, it's God who is proclaiming the message of repentance. Come to me, right? The responsibility is for you. You turn, you listen, you respond, you make a decision and I will rescue you. I've done the work. I've satisfied my wrath, but you've got to be a part of it in your own decision making. So if you go to hell, you have no God to blame for that but yourself. And finally, the last point here is that the message of salvation must be shared. This is what Jesus is saying. Notice he says in verse 51, have you understood all these things? Now he's speaking about all the way back to the beginning of his teaching here and specifically the parables. And that question wasn't to see if they just understood intellectually. But he wanted to know in the depths of their hearts, do they understand? Which is like asking, are you willing to follow what I've said to you? Are you willing to listen and do what I'm saying? Then if you are and if you do, then go and spread the message. Go tell people. You're a part of my work. And the Lord must have accepted their answer because he sent them out with the message. And we know they did and they did and they went and they shared. And they weren't like the false teachers of their day, which is the last part of this in verse 52, which can be a little bit unclear If you don't think about it, notice he says, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Well, what does that really mean? Well, a scribe was a person who wrote down what somebody else in authority said, basically. In fact, I was talking to a young lady just the other day, and she was telling me that her job at the hospital was a scribe. Some of you will know what that is. I said, I was intrigued by that because I was thinking biblically and she said, oh, it's I follow behind the doctor and I write down everything. Got it. 
Well, that's what the scribes did. They wrote down everything that they said that the Lord said. The problem was, as you know now, that they became wrong interpreters of the law and began to follow their own interpretation and came up with things that were not accurate. And so Jesus is using them now, even in his own illustration, to say, don't be like that. Learn from that. Learn what's true out of the Old Testament and now learn from what I'm telling you and go repeat it. Be the scribes yourself, just like the head of a household will give truth from their learning over the years and their knowledge. You know, it's interesting how that happens, right? We come in as children, but over time we gain knowledge. And so when you become the parents, and especially you dads, who are the, or moms even, who are the heads of households because of your situation, you know that you become the wise one. And you begin to be the one who leads people in the right way. And so Jesus says, look, you've got this now. You say you believe. You say you understand. Now go and be the head of this. Teach. Proclaim. Help people to believe and understand. And that should be very clear. But sadly, many people in churches just want happy churches. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. Some of you have come from places like that. In fact, I'm hearing more and more people say, when is the last time I've ever heard a message on hell? I read an article also from someone who said this. They said of themselves, I recently read that the purpose of a certain Christian broadcasting organization is to be a good neighbor to a variety of listeners. That sounds good. The policy statement, however, given to prospective broadcasters includes the instruction. When you're preparing your program for these stations, please avoid using the following. Criticism of other religions and references to conversion, missionaries, believers, unbelievers, old covenant, new covenant, church, the cross, crucifixion, Calvary, Christ, the blood of Christ, salvation through Christ, redemption through Christ, the Son of God, Jehovah, or the Christian life. These people, they say, listening are hungering for words of comfort. We ask you to adhere to these restrictions so that God's word can continue to go forth. Please help us maintain our position of bringing comfort to suffering people. Now, you know what I'm thinking. Maybe I better not say. (laughs) Let's ask the people in hell. That's what I'm thinking. Whether they would want to hear the message of hell. Why didn't you tell me? Wasn't that the rich man in Luke 16? Go tell my brothers. Let me tell them. No. If you remember the end of that parable, Jesus says, they have the prophets. They have my word. Let them hear that. And beloved, that's you and me. We have the word. We have the spirit. And that's all we need. Jesus' own words were this. The time is fulfilled. This is Mark 1, verse 14, 15. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So let's close with this. What could I say this morning to each of you that would cause you, if you don't know and aren't 100% certain that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and you've surrendered your heart to him and he's paid the debt of your sin, what could I say or do to get you to believe that? 
I mean, I would do tap dancing. I would sing. I would whatever I could do. And I know that I'm making sounding light of it, but I'm telling you, folks, what can I do? I find myself often saying, Lord, show me what I can do in order to help the message be that much clearer so that somebody will say, I don't want to go there. And by the way, it's not about just not going to hell. Now, God can use whatever God wants to use. And for many people, the fear of hell is a great motivator. There's a good reason. And if that's you, then praise the Lord. In other words, if God is using a message like this to help you to realize that I don't want to go there, I'd rather trust Christ and follow him than praise his name. But God's not just looking for people to think that they can just get by without going to hell and then go and live their merry way. The message of hell is for those people to realize that if you don't straighten up and you don't trust him, and and I'm trying to say this clearly, beloved, and lovingly as possible because intermixed with all of my words here are the words of the Lord saying, I love you. That's why I'm telling you this. It's because I love you. Right? A parent disciplines those whom he loves. God's saying, I love you. So don't hear just the judgment and the fiery damnation of God. Hear his warning and his plea to come to him. And so I just ask you this morning, maybe, I don't know, you know, Chris's dad, and I'm I'm not saying anything here. He didn't know he was going to have a heart attack the other day. He's just out doing his work, right, Chris? Next thing he knows, he's being told he's died five times. Shocked five times. Hamp told me this morning. It's not to scare you, but I think the Lord wants us to wake up. Just understand that this is reality. This is truth. And whether you believe it or not, you're going to get caught up in the net. And there's going to come a day where the angels will come and they will separate. The question will be, which power will you be in? That sounds impersonal. But I think it's going to be very, very personal. Very personal. So I will plead with you, beloved. I'll be the preacher who says, come to Christ. Even if you've heard it a thousand times. Because I think a part of what's going to happen in hell is going to be the message of the preacher who preached the message that you heard over and over and over and over and you're never going to be able to stop it as a part of your torment and you're going to always remember what you should have done when you had the time let's pray together Father I'd be the first to admit I don't like messages like this but I know Lord it's truth and I, I know your people know it's truth I know the souls of those that you have made know its truth. And so in this moment, Lord, as as solemn and as holy as it is, which is always before you, it's our prayer this morning, my prayer this morning, that whomever may have heard this message would not run from you, but run to you. Lord, may they hear a message of love. May they hear a message of pleading from you, not me, but from you to their hearts so that they will know that you are a God who came to rescue, 
but also that they would understand the truth that you are God and you will not abdicate your role or your throne and for all who reject, whether willfully or not, will have to be dealt with. This is the message of Christ. And so, Father, do your work, we pray, in the hearts of those that need you most. Father, perhaps there's somebody here today that just... I don't know, maybe they've just been wandering away. Maybe they've lost their focus. I pray that today would be the day where they come back and you rekindle that fire in them, that fire that would just see souls out in the daily workplace or neighborhoods as souls that need to be rescued. Lord, I pray that even for those of us who desire to spread the truth, that you give us those opportunities to bring it up. Lord, I thank you that we're not responsible for the receiving of the message. And so, Lord, again, whatever you're doing this morning, I pray that your spirit would just do the work. And, Lord, give people the vision of what John Bunyan was talking about and what the scriptures say. Lord, that they would not find themselves in that eternal pit. Lord, if we could summarize the entire scripture, it would be simply that, that you came to rescue people from the pit. And Lord, may they respond to you in your love. I pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. While Pastor Hamp is playing, we're going to have to skedaddle. But if men will be up here. And um, by the way, ladies, if you want someone to chat with, share with, I know one of our godly ladies will come and, and help you as well. Okay? So we love you and um, have a blessed day, okay? All right, let's stand. I hope all of you can sing this, but if you can't, come on up and talk to us. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad, oh, he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad, oh, he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter his courts with praise. I will say this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad, oh, he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. He has made me glad, oh, he has made me glad. I will rejoice for he has made me glad. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word, Lord. There's times when your word is uh, very straightforward, telling us what we need to hear. But Lord, as, as we just sang, those of us who truly know you as, as your son is Lord and Savior, we have thanksgiving in our heart. One day we will enter heaven. So glad to see you face to face. Lord, if there's anyone here that can't say that for sure, then Lord, just put it on their heart to talk to someone, 
but most importantly, to talk to you, to seek you. So, Lord, we just thank you for the time that you've given us here today. We ask your blessings on our gathering together uh, after this, this service downstairs, and we ask your blessings on the meal. In Jesus' name, amen.